Welcome to my talk, the podcast series brought to you by ISS Market Intelligence. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, the focus of our discussions on my talk is the global financial services business um, and its many subsectors, asset management, wealth management, life, ins- uh, life insurance, banking, fintech, you name it. For more than three decades, ISS Market Intelligence and its predecessor companies have been at the forefront of observing um, and really studying as passionate students of the business, the developments in these various businesses. And we uh, hope to bring you a somewhat unique perspective, both afforded by our long time study of the marketplace, uh, but also by um, uh, inviting uh, really interesting and uh, thoughtful and highly expert thought leaders um, from around the world. We do create uh, episodes uh, monthly. So if you enjoy this episode, please um, remember to subscribe to my talk on uh, your por- uh, preferred podcast platform. My name is uh, Goshka Folda. I'm your host and global head of research at ISS Market Intelligence. Now, in this episode, uh, we are going to return to Europe, to the UK, um, and uh, we will do a checkup on uh, some research that we have uh, spoken uh, about in uh, a couple of previous uh, episodes of my um, talk, um, and that is the the topic that is actually resonant globally, and it's the rise of model portfolio solutions. Um, today, I was listening in to the uh, Financial Times Future of Asset Management Conference, and as well as yesterday, and again, the topic of solutions was absolutely um, a, a front and center in many, many a discussion um, and on many minds of the leaders of asset managers around the world. Now, um, uh, I think that we have to understand that when we think about the model portfolio solutions, the format of the solution itself can differ depending on uh, geography, uh, the composition, whether it's funds or securities or both could differ. Who is the main architect of the solution could differ. But um, clearly the fact remains that around the globe, the shift towards strategic asset allocation solutions has been on the ascent for a while and it appears to only just um, even accelerate as we speak. Now, not everywhere um, are we as lucky as uh, 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 in the UK where our combination of vast amount of transactional data that we collect through some of our tools at ISS Market Intelligence, Financial Clarity being one of them, uh, just launched Advisor Clarity, so also a very deep understanding of the advisor marketplace, but we also, to marry with this data, uh, data mine, uh, gold mine of data, if you will, we have a dynamic duo of researchers, data Merkel workers who have helped, um, uh, uh, build, um, algorithms to better understand the growing importance of model portfolios, um, or MPS as a driver of fund sales in the UK. So enter our dynamic duo with whom you have met, uh, um, on this podcast previously, Mark Humper, who is head of client data strategy at, um, the MI, uh, global market, um, global distribution intelligence. Welcome, Mark. And 
Ben Reed Hurwitz, EMEA Research um, Leader at ISS Market Intelligence. Both are joining my, me from La one, uh, London and a warm welcome to you both. So let me just, um, I'm not going to do their bios, uh, listen to previous podcasts where I attempted uh, my best to embarrass them with personal details, but uh, let's now jump right into the MPS topic. So since the last report was released, um, how has your view of the uh, model portfolio solution business evolved? Uh, why don't we start with Mark? Thank you, Goshka. Well, well, I think firstly, before going any further, we really must take a moment to celebrate the expanded report coverage. I mean, as we know, FC Financial Clarity already has you know, 90% of the UK retail market, and with its 13, 14 platforms. But these models, when we were looking for model data, these models were largely hidden. They need an awful lot of careful analysis, which we discussed last time, all the, the twists and turns. So the first edition was based on around about 70% of the gross sales of that, uh, that cohort. Well, this, our second edition, well, we're now over over 90%. So, and that's really been achieved by, you know, refining the forensics and lifting that lid on 12 now, because we were only doing, I think, nine of the platforms we had an open on, but now we've got 12 of that 13. We can basically work out what's going on, either because we've refined the data or we, we've really just improved our models and got more and more granular. Now, obviously, this is what excites me, and I, I'd love to tell you, you know, how we did it, but you never know who might be listening, so I'd probably best not. Anyway, so to answer your question, obviously, further data granularity does beget deeper understanding of the likely decision process, obviously, the who behind the investment decision and the complexity of outsourcing, all, you know, all of which Ben will pick up later because that's where the analysis comes in. But, but I think for me, the most fascinating data discovery was the true extent of the advisor models. You see, there are two steps to the forensic process. First of all, you identify if it is model behavior, and there's lots of ways of doing that. You can have a flag, or you can try and look out when people are always buying the same groups of funds. But I won't give away too much, obviously. But then the next thing is you assign the DFM name. Now, this is already difficult enough. If they, Many of the platforms do give you a name, and you can work it out, and that's what we've used for most of the cases. But in many other cases, you, you've got no name. And we were trying to work out, you know, is there a particular set of funds? Could we, you know, superimpose something that we knew was a model? We know it's a model, but we just don't know who's behind it. And a significant chunk of this, we couldn't link to any known DFM. And we thought it was just a data quality issue. But we now realise that it wasn't. A bit like that horrendous iceberg lurking below the surface. It's a huge amount of business. These are advisor models, often just run by one advisor, one firm, maybe a couple of firms. But and it's been going on for years, we reckon, just below the surface. And, and that's that obviously was the extent of that. You know, this is when you, you, you start out thinking, ah, I, I haven't got a good system here. I've made a mistake. And then you realize, well, actually, no, it's the truth. There's an awful lot going on there that really wasn't obvious. So but anyway, Ben will pick up on that. So I think I've probably said my piece over to you Ben what did you see well I, I think it's the the person perfect jumping off point uh, Mark and just to reiterate what Mark's talking about our research our focus it remains you know owned in on who is making the decision who is selecting the funds and that really comes down to where is portfolio construction, where is the asset allocation decision located? 
So that continues to be our focus. And basically, the more we do the research, more we found it's 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 actually quite an interesting story. More needs to be uncovered. But this is what people are asking. To simplify it, our clients are still asking us, essentially, who do I call and what do I call them about? And that's really what this research is about. It's where it started. Because what we've realized is model portfolios, when we're talking about the UK financial advisor channel, they might be behind 50% of the gross sales of the channel. So it's extremely important to understand, well, who's behind those decisions? And as Mark points out, we've discovered it's, it's a little more complicated than just who is the model provider, who's the investment manager behind it, because not all of it's operating on that system. So a lot of what we do in the second edition is we're going sort of behind the curtains and we're addressing it through a lens of sort of insourcing and outsourcing. Because again, when it comes to who do you call, do you still call that financial advisor firm or the advisor, or do you need to call who they've outsourced the decision to? And that's really what we've spent a lot of time uncovering. Um, I think that's fascinating. And, and I know that we can't spill all the beans in the report, but that that movement or that criticality actually, or discovered criticality of advisors driving their own models or maybe sharing a model within the firm, et cetera, is, um, is part of that grassroots uh, shift to, to kind of modeling but yet is often invisible to the naked eye because, as you pointed out, there's no kind of DFM of record. There's no program, program of, of record. I think that that's an absolutely critical point because that goes to it is likely that as an asset manager, you have to both influence the, the, the model runner, if, if such exists, but also individual advisors or advisor groups who are still in a grassroots fashion putting together solutions um, uh, and and they are just a lot more difficult to pinpoint. And, and this report does exactly that. So that's really fantastic um, uh, point. Uh, uh, picking up on the point about loca- locating the fund selector, um, what have you learned about how firms are insourcing or outsourcing uh, this uh, portfolio construction uh, function? Uh, ben, perhaps you can start. So we, we have some fascinating discoveries here. The the first discovery is if we is we took the universe and we essentially broke it down by firms where all of the business is being insourced or all of the business is being outsourced, or we actually see a combination of the two underneath. And interesting, what we find is about half of the firms choose either insourcing or outsourcing completely. And then about half of the firms have both options available. Now, it is worth noting that the half that has both options available is by far the biggest chunk of the business. So that is is doing around three quarters of the business. What's interesting, though, is if we look at those who've chosen to have both options on the shelf to sort of have that broader model capability within the firm, They tend to actually divide again, though, quite strongly to almost all the businesses being outsourced or almost all the businesses being insourced. And I think how these dynamics develop is going to be very interesting. What we if we think about the economics, I think some of it makes sense. I mean, first of all, if we look at model portfolios, 
if it's either active or blended in their choice of funds, we're talking about 20 to 25 beeps on assets. That's the revenue line for being the, the fund selector and the asset allocator. I mean, in today's age where there's significant cost pressure, I think that isn't an insignificant amount. So I think it's only natural we've seen many people try and retain that within either their business, because when it comes to insourcing, it gets a bit complicated. So this could either be the the you know advisor, the IFA itself, or the IFA might be part of a broader wealth management group that sort of has a model provider. And this is sort of where consolidation comes in. But again, it's sort of keeping it within the family, that 20 to 25 beefs. So I think there's a, a good reason many have gone this route. I think the interesting question, though, is if you can't build a sufficient internal book, will it still make sense to keep that program? Because even though models may not be as cost heavy as funds, there will ultimately be a cost and resources needed to sort of effectively run the models. So I am curious if we continue to see almost this, you know, tail-ended structure to the market where firms that have had great success uh, with their internal proposition essentially, you know, keep the majority of their business uh, through this internal option. And for those who, who haven't had the success or don't have the success quick enough, they essentially go to outsourcing the whole function because ultimately that's sort of going to be cost effective. So these are the type of insights we've we've started to uncover. And these these to me are really the insights that matter if you're a model provider out there or a fund manager, because again, they speak a lot to who you actually need to talk to when approaching different firms. Mark, a comment. I know that uh, uh, you mentioned the forensics uh, science. Uh, it seems very complicated to try to track down which models are representative of insourcing versus outsourcing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes, it's it's forensics, and I do love my forensics. Um, so to, to take the analogy a little bit further, you know, we're always hearing of these medical breakthroughs where, you know, scientists talk of genetic markers. Well, you can apply that concept to NPS. If you think of it this way, there are roughly, what, in the UK anyway, 4,000 funds. And typically 10%, 400 or so are used in around about 60 to 70% of all portfolios. So, and no surprise who they are. They're the big names. I, I won't mention who. But, you know, like the gene, you know, the human genome, amongst this swathe of, of common predictable components, there are outliers. The unusual fun choices around the edges, like that, um, like a stray fingerprint, but again, it's all forensics, that can identify who is behind an investment decision. Um, now, this is important because it shows there are always opportunities out there for the smaller boutique fund managers, those who can pitch a, a niche but relevant story that you know captures the market zeitgeist or resonates within a given fund selector. And, and this, for me, was... The fascinating but again because obviously uh, we see many quite pedestrian portfolios out there and everyone wants to add a little bit of sparkle and the thing is they generally speaking always add the same sparkle so uh, that, that's one way of doing it but again you know you say mustn't give away too many of the secrets that makes uh good sense and uh 
you know, who would have thought that we would be talking about genetic markers and straight fingerprints uh, when talking about fun business? But here we are. This is the the age of the the, the power, uh, the harnessing the power of the data. So um, I, I think Mark, you touched briefly on the topic of um, you know really um, pinpointing specific opportunities. For example, even for boutique managers. Um, uh, ben, I know you have a comment uh, about that. Yeah, I think Mark makes a, a great point about sort of the markers and what that actually means for for you as a fund manager, because I think there there is ample opportunity for boutique managers, uh, particularly if ESG sort of gains steam. But equally, I think where the the challenge lies is really for those sort of mid-sized managers because what we sort of see in the data is there are many managers sort of winning, you know, one, maybe two mandates with some success, but there's only in a few core managers, the big names, as many people know in the UK, who I'd say are having sort of broad-based success in this area. And I think this is something you've you've sort of talked about, Goshkin, you know, well, is is there going to sort of be a continuing of the the hollowing out of sort of the middle of fund manager in the sense that, you know, if you're a big guy or woman, you you can use your resources to drive down costs and keep winning sort of core mandates. And if you fall outside of that, you, you can likely still have some control over cost, but it usually has to be a more boutique specialized mandate. And this is really what we see in a lot of the construction of the portfolios. The core is really pretty similar. But then they they take sort of different tacks on the edges to sort of add that sort of spice to the dish, the difference, because there are a lot of model portfolios out there. So there is a requirement to, to sort of be different. So again, I think there is an opportunity to be different. But for many managers, there, there may be a challenge to sort of capture more than one or two of those mandates. So that's a, a really, you know, good insight on on the fact that the model portfolio solution does not really lock out, does not kind of always end up with just the large core managers, but there is plentiful opportunity really at the margins of the portfolios and really understanding where those where those opportunities might lie is is possibly a secret secret to significant success in, in participating in the in the solutions revolution, if you will. Um, this is all very, very exciting to me, someone who loves data. Um, uh, where do you guys think the research goes from here? Uh, let me start with Mark on that topic. Well, up until now, the focus has been on identifying the model business in a rather linear way, basically. Is it a model? And if so, who's built it? The funds themselves have been in some ways bystanders, you know, noted really only for their sector or brand. You know, you have a model, you need a UK-focused equity income with a good name to bulk up your, your sterling medium risk. Now we want to explore more the uh, the interplay, shall we say, between these funds in various buying scenarios. Once again, we, we have this depth of data. So, for example, we can isolate a, an actual batch of funds without, again, giving away too much. You know, the more you go into this, the more you can actually isolate a whole cohort of funds that was bought as one buying decision. The actual 
investor behind it. Not their name, of course, but the fact that they bought all these on this particular date. And generally speaking, what you find is when you get that granular, you can say that, hey, um, you may have with one particular platform uh, several accounts. And generally speaking, you'll separate those accounts. You'll have your ISA, you'll have your SIP, you'll have your, your, your play around with those more exotic funds, but they'll be isolated. And we can see that now. So you can see what was bought as part of your particular model SIP. Now, if you take a step back and you say, well, we can see all the funds that were bought as part of that. Now, is there a difference when a fund is bought as a batch as part of a, a model, for example? There are very typical funds out there. They're always part of someone's UK passive. And, you know, you, know, you don't have to give any names away that there'll be the big names, the vanguards, etc. But um, then are they bought in a different way when we know they're not bought as part of a model? When people make an individual decision, um, maybe not necessarily advised by, well, partially advised by the advisor? We don't know. But, and that's where you think, that's, that's where it starts getting quite interesting. Because obviously one thing the... Um, the fund managers themselves want to know is where should I put I've got I've got enough money for five or three or two heads. What should I do with them? Do I focus them on the MPS market or do I go out old style and try and prospect by, you know, going to the northeast of England and, and you know, you know, burning away shoe leather on uh, you know, going around Leeds in various places? What do I do? What, who is actually buying? I mean, we've actually had this said to us where a couple of quite well known fund managers said, look, we're doing OK. We're selling lots of funds. We just don't know why. And it's like that old advertising adage, isn't it? You know, 50% works. Which 50%? So so I think that's that's really it. And obviously, then you start coming down to why do people buy funds for different reasons in different cohorts? Why is it some funds always appear together? What drives this? Obviously, this brand recognition, maybe investment strategy, or, or dare I say it, fees? Anyway, that's... Let's not be cynical. So, Benjamin, I'm sure you have some other ideas. Well, I think I think that's great, Mark, and a lot of that's exactly on point. I mean, in, in I always have seen the wealth management business as relationship business. So what we're going to do is continue to study the relationship sort of up and down the value chain. And sort of to Mark's point, I think the business is always a business where I call everyone as frenemies. Because in, in most cases, you're always operating beside someone who both complements what you do, but may have an opportunity at some point to take your job. And it's, it's sort of managing those relationships that's always been key to succeeding in this business. So one example I'll give you, because it speaks to our next research, which we're going to look at multi-asset funds, because again, we really want to round out that who is the fund selector question. And when we have multi-asset funds, it is the manager of those funds who's the fund selector. But where we get into the frenemy conversation is that many of these model portfolios, they obviously use underlying single strategy funds. They've won already sort of challenged fund managers and, and broken up the narrative as of fund manager as portfolio constructor. But now many of them have also started to sort of unitize what they're doing and create their own multi-asset funds. And, and we'll have to sort of see how far that goes and whether those ever have the same extensive reach as, as model programs. Obviously, there can be more costs involved, but they sort of heavily use authorized corporate directors uh, from sort of the marketplace there. 
but again, it sort of just adds another interesting element to the story of where someone's now sort of going into someone else's space. And then the last thing I'll end with, Goshka, is because, you know, I'll put on futurist Ben Hat. Um, and, and I think this narrative's picking up a little in the U.S., but we have something like direct indexing. And the, the, the next avenue in model portfolios is what happens to security selection. Is that guaranteed to stay with fund managers? Or could that be challenged down the road itself, which actually could leave fund managers more as, as executors opposed to sort of strategy setters? Alternatively, many fund managers have invested heavily in their multi-asset capabilities. Maybe the next, the next decade actually sees them retake the crown. So again, it's, it's all about mapping out the different parts of the value chain, understanding sort of who has the capabilities, and then watching to see how the cards are played. So that's really where our research is going to continue to focus on, to try and answer those big questions, as Mark pointed out. I have these resources. What do I do with them? And help me under, help me make sure I understand which ones are actually working properly. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Mark and Ben. Uh, uh, to our listeners, I don't know if you knew uh, when you were dialing in to to listen to a podcast about uh, a model portfolio solutions and portfolio construction that you're going to be treated to uh, to a real futuristic uh, um, forensic style uh, 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 investigation with genetic markers uh, and with our dynamic duo. So uh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's such an interesting topic um, at an age when asset managers the world over are, are carefully structuring their marketing, their, their, their sales efforts, um, uh, to, to optimize those infrastructures and, and, and really understand buying influences. Mark, uh, to your point, you know, uh, uh, it's not just about throwing the resources out there, boots on the ground and hoping for the best. You do want to know what actually works, what doesn't work. And this research, I, I know as it continues to grow, but already I think is bringing some real, real deep insight into something that in general asset management business has not had um, uh, uh, available. You know, we're not a product. We don't operate in a product that's barcoded that we can trace exactly where it's been sold and what has happened to it. So this is fantastic research. Thank you, gentlemen, for, for this, uh, very interesting discussion. And that is a wrap up for us in September. Uh, we are lining up um, special industry guests for upcoming episodes. So please join us throughout the fall for our monthly episodes. There could be um, a, a couple of episodes next month. Um, as always, I encourage you to ping us about your ideas, what you would like to talk uh, um, for us to talk about. We're always keen to hear from you. And uh, let me just thank you on behalf of ISS Market Intelligence and enjoy the fall, uh, or should I say the conference season, because uh, this is what it seems to be happening in the business. It's a busy, busy conference uh, season. And uh, if you see me at any of the conferences, please um, make sure to come by and say hello. With that, I will wrap up. Thank you very much.